0: Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of important emerging ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On this podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't come here necessarily prepared to discuss. I'm delighted to be here today with philosopher, journalist, activist, and filmmaker Bernard-Henri Lévy. The Washington Post has this to say about him. There is no American equivalent of Bernard-Henri Lévy, known in France as BHL. He is among the last of a quintessentially French breed, the 20th century intellectuel engagé. That loosely translates as an intellectual actively at work in the world. A fixture in French philosophy since he burst on the scene in the 1970s, Lévy has also been an influential political voice against racism and genocide, and on behalf of the oppressed in the Bosnian War, Ukraine and Syria. Lévy's latest book, The Genius of Judaism, is a personal, philosophical, and historical account of Jewish ideas at work in Western culture. It's also a response to what he outlines as a powerful resurgence of anti-Semitism in the Western world. Welcome to Think Again, Bernard. Thank you. I'd like to start with the personal and then go to the general. You talk about how you came later in your intellectual life to Jewish ideas and Jewish reading and teaching yourself Hebrew and so on, but that it, it was like revolutionary for you in your thinking. Could you talk a little bit about that? Like how it has transformed your, your work or your life? A
1: revolutionary? I don't know. It, it was a Teshuva it was a return which is a classical move for a, for a Jew. Sure, I belong to a family where Judaism was nearly lost and lost on purpose. My parents uh, came from a background where a high price had been paid to being a Jew, highest price had been paid to fight fascism and Nazism and they were probably in the state of mind of thinking that for their children the less Judaism the best. And they bred me in a nearly complete ignorance of what it meant being a Jew.
0: In in English, the book is called The Genius of Judaism. In French, it's l'esprit. Jewish ideas and modes of thought in the world what do you mean by the genius of Judaism and what do you you see? First of all, is genius a good translation for esprit, for what you mean by esprit in French?
1: It's something else, but it's a good translation, yes. Uh, Between l'esprit and genius, the difference is that l'esprit, there is an allusion to Hegel. Okay. L'esprit, the absolute spirit. Le génie, you have an allusion to Chateaubriand. And finally, at the end of the day, I think I prefer Chateaubriand and Hegel regarding the Jews. Okay. Hegel regarding the Jews is a condemnation to death. As you know, the Hegel theory about the Jews was that was the following: uh, There is no possibility of life for a people except in a state. In a nation-state. The Jews have no nation-state. We were in the 19th century, so they have to disappear. Right. And the spirit of history condemned the spirit of Judaism to die. This was Hegel. Chateaubriand, Génie du Judaism, was something else. Uh, Génie du Christianisme and Génie du Judaism. Chateaubriand, when he said Génie, meant the beauty and the wisdom of Christianity. And he could have said also the the beauty and the the wisdom of Judaism because he was one of the very few European great writers who was not anti-Semitic. And he was so little anti-Semitic that when he went in Jerusalem, when he saw the poor Jews inhabiting the first stem of the yeshuv, he identified himself to them. An aristocrat having been exiled from france uh, lost in the street, in the roads of uh, devastated europe he felt a community of destiny with jews so this great writer maybe the, one of the best french writers mm. having had this th- sympathy compassion for the jews i like this idea so i'm happy of the title <laughs> <laughs> so but what
0: so what is it what is the genius of judaism what is the sort of unique philosophical, I mean, it's obviously a long, a book-length answer, but...
1: What, when what I is say genius that? of Judaism, yeah. I mean, what does being a Jew brings to the world which would not been brought without the Jews? Right. And this, what, this is the point.
0: And what is that? Or what are some of the key themes of that? A lot
1: of things, but my hypothesis is that there is a function of Judaism in the economy of the being, in the order of the, in the being, there is a role of Judaism which is to escort the nations, the other nations on the path of their own redemption. Hmm. To be a Jew is not thinking of yourself, is not thinking of the fate and of the redemption of your family. It is necessary to think about the redemption of the other Nations this is the role ontologic metaphysical role of being a Jew in the world and when after having offered the law to the seventy nations present in the world to the sons of Edom and to the sons of Ishmael, when all of them deny declines you know too heavy for us no please no, and when the little small Jewish nations accept and endorse, it is under this condition. Mm. God says, okay, you will be my treasure, but on the condition that your message will be a message for all the nations, and Mm. not only for yourself. This is the genius of Judaism.
0: So are you viewing this as a kind of a metaphysical narrative that is unfolding throughout history that, that is required to do so by God. It, it's there for a reason kind of thing.
1: By God or by whoever you want. But uh, I think that there is a text, the bigger text, maybe mm. the most clever, the most useful, the most civilized of history of humanity, mm. who is the written Torah and then the oral Torah. And this text, yes, has a function in in the world. Mm. And the people, the nations, you have some attempts Mm. in the history. You had some attempts of nations to forget this text, to say, okay, we don't care about Bible. We don't want to hear about Talmud. And we are going to burn them and to kill those who pretend to bear bear on their shoulders this text. It always turned very bad, (laughs) not only for the bearers, for the Jews, but for them. Right. It was an act of suicide. When you severe yourself, when a nation pretends to severe, to cut itself from this Jewish uh, aiguillon, from this Jewish spark, from this Jewish uh, little gin, mm. which escort, escort you on the path of your redemption, you are a dead man. Mm. You are a dead nation. It happened in France when Philippe Lebel Expelled the Jews. It happened in uh, Germany when uh, Hitler uh, decided to kill them to the last. It was an act of a commission of suicide for the German people. And in general, each time you have this idea: to do without the Jews, to forget this little uh, uh, genius of Judaism, this little d <laughs> yeah, yeah, book yeah. of Judaism, you are dead. or at least you are very weakened. So I had a thought, one, one thing I found interesting. Uh, the the, uh, ar- yeah, the yeah. Arabs, look at the Arab countries, frankly. Okay. I know not so bad the Arab countries. I fought so much, I did fight so much in my life for their freedom, for their uh, embracing of democracy and so on. I see that in the Arab countries where the Jewish trace has been erased, Mm. where the bearers of the trace have been expelled, and when the trace has been um, erased, it's very difficult to implant, uh, to plant the human rights, the democracy, the liberalism. Mm. In the place where you have still a concern of the Jewish trace, I can quote Morocco, I can quote Kurdistan, I can quote other, then you have a good ground for it. So even there, you see the cost for a civilization to sever itself from, the Jew- for, from its Jewish member, Jewish part.
0: So there's something in your book, you talk about distance, and it seems to me that this distance or this outsider equality that Jews always have, in a sense, in whatever society they're in, except perhaps Israel, is part of this function that you're talking about. That, that it's, you know, the being able to view the society from the outside. I thought also of comedy. Like in America, many of our best comedians are Jewish, not all of them. And that, that somehow twisting the view of reality and, and showing a mirror, a strange mirror to it, is part of that role. Is that so?
1: Not, to be, the, that? not to be the hostage of any community, hmm. not to be reduced to any community, to keep a part of oneself who is not um, resumable to a community, this is a duty for for any human. Mm. And this is one of the things, I would not say that the Jews do it better, but I say that the Jewish text is embedded in all cultures, the part of the cultures, known or unknown, repressed or full light, which helps doing that. Believing that even if you are faithful to a society, to a community, to a country, you are a free man when you have a part of yourself which is out of it.
0: Right, so it's a distance which can also be like, is a little bit, sometimes I think of irony in that way, the ability to look at your reality as not a fixed thing. It brings hope. Absolutely.
1: You have a French philosopher who was not Jewish, but he was more than Jewish and he ended his life in dialogue with uh, one of my Jewish friends, Benny Levy, with the Jewish text. It was Jean-Paul Sartre. Okay. And Jean-Paul Sartre, when he was young, had a great quote. He said, what is a salo? You know what is a salo? A villain. Salo. A, salo. Okay. a bad guy, a villain. Salo means uh, a wicked man, a bad man, uh, maybe an executioner. Salo. Okay. Salo is the worst. What is okay. a salo? And Sartre said, you have many sorts of salo. You have the executioner, you have the man who rapes a woman, you have the man who, who steals money from the poor. But mm. you have a metaphysical meaning of a salaud. And he said, the salaud is the one who believes that he is at his place, mm. that he occupies his place. That this place is his and that all of him is reduced to his place. That he makes one with this place without any distance. Okay. This for Sartre is the And This is very profound. I think that when you are unable to feel a discordance, when you are unable to be aware of the part of awkwardness in the way in which you inhabit your place, when you don't feel this part of awkwardness, when you feel yourself like a a grass, like a plant belonging to, being part of, then you are a salo in the metaphysical sense of Sartre, and also in the common sense of all the Saloperies, all Mm. the acts of salo, Mm. which we see every day around the world.
0: Yes. And, you know, for me, in my mind, the way I think about that is a sense of humor. Um, That's just helpful to me as a way of thinking about it. But I wonder whether you think, you know, at this point I'm seeing my country very fragmented, very split. Um, We're seeing this in many European and Western countries. And I wonder whether we're seeing people in this climate in America, whether it's less and less possible to have that that distance, you know, as people become polarized or divide themselves into little bubbles and say, I am a liberal. I believe this. If you say that it's outrageous. I'm a conservative,
1: you know, that's why humor is a way of resisting America. Humor, just irony. Humor is an act of resistance for sure. You are right. I, I remember the first speech of Barack Obama the first speech I Mm. heard in 2004 Mm. in the Democratic Convention of Boston endorsing John Kerry. And his speech was all about there is no blue states of America, red states of America, there is only United States of America. This was the core of the message of Obama, Mm. how far we are from there, how far we are from this vision of the young senator of the state of Illinois dreaming of a united country, united towards some goals, some values, and so on, being real state of United States of America. We are very far from that.
0: It's hard, to, it's, it's hard to fathom, but we must have been far from that in some sense at that time as well. I mean, those all of those seeds of fragmentation must have been present for it to, you know, for Trump to come along and make a television show out of the presidency and suddenly you know it must have
1: been there all along. Fragmentation is not bad. Democracy means fragmentation. Uh. Democracy means quarrels. Uh. Democracy means that you have uh, many hypotheses who might be as valid as each other to rule the society. The problem begins when these hypotheses become fanatic. When they exclude the other. When they pretend to be the only one.
0: What is the tipping point though? Like for you, you've been following French politics, you've been involved in it for decades. What is the tipping point where the conversation becomes impossible, where the, where the, the, ti- the gap becomes too the, great? The like
1: tipping point is populism. Populism means precisely an idea of the people who bears the truth okay. and who is entitled, authorized to expel from its body, those who not rely, who not uh, join this truth. Mm. This is a tipping point. As long as you think that the quarrel is legitimate, that the truth is always provisional, that your adversary can be right, and that you can be wrong, and that this is what the elections are made for. Why elections at the end of the day? Because we never know if the party which has been chosen is good. It is partly good, partly not. When you begin to think that you are the embodiment of the truth, that the other is the embodiment of the evil, that there is nothing true in what he says, uh, then the tipping
0: point is crossed. This brings us back to the genius of Judaism in, you know, the the Talmudic tradition of arguing without dismissing your opponent. I mean, people arguing against the Torah, uh, against certain interpretations of the Torah arguing against each other for hundreds and hundreds of years.
1: It's yes. built in, yes? Exactly. What is striking in the, in the Talmud that um, all the commentaries are true. Uh, there is no privileged commentary mm. as long as you don't strike, as long as you don't deny the elemental truth mm. which are the facts, which are the ground of uh, which makes humanity. But if you accept this common ground, this common agenda, then the range of interpretation is nearly infinite.
0: I think that's a good place for us to uh, shift to the second part of the show, where we are going to watch short videos and discuss them. They're related to the ideas that we've been talking about, I think. They're a surprise to me and to you. They were picked by our uh, video team. So let's see what they have for us.
2: The people we we torment the most, cause them to suffer the most, aren't people we don't view as people. Because if you don't view them as people, why would you want to make them suffer? It's people you hate. It's people, in other words, it's not people you kind of dehumanize, but it's rather people who you acknowledge their humanity, and this is why you want to make them suffer. This is core to wanting to make them suffer. I was on the radio earlier today and before me there was a segment on revenge porn and it was chilling. It was, it was typically men in relationships and relationships go bad and then they go on to post uh, uh, you know, intimate photos and videos of their girlfriend on porn sites, send them to their family members, register them for, to sexual offender sites and STD sites. Um, put on their address and contact information online to try to goad other men into sexually assaulting them. And you think about what happens with, with behavior as evil as that. And it's not that these men are thinking oh their girlfriends are nothing, they're not even human. It's rather they, they, are, they think their girlfriends have committed this horrible moral wrong and they want them to suffer. So I think that in some ways sadism and cruelty of all sorts. Involves a recognition of the humanity of the other person because this recognition is, is what fuels the, the cruelty. If you thought that they weren't human, you may want to eradicate them or get rid of them, but you wouldn't want them to suffer so much.
0: This is making me think and might be a segue into discussing some of what you write about anti Semitism and the new rise of anti Semitism in your book. You know, I remember reading um, Daniel Goldhagen's book a long time ago, Hitler's willing executioners, it was called, and this idea that the special hatred that is anti-Semitism that existed in maybe since Roman times is unique because of the intimacy, in a way, between the Jewish people and the societies in which they live, and the familiarity, the family sense, in a way. I wonder if you would care to expand on that.
1: Yes, Goldagan is right on this point. That's the reason why anti-Semitism is not a, a racism. Uh, racism is not a gender of which anti-Semitism would be a species. It's two very different things. A racist hates the other because he is different. Right. Because his difference is conspicuous. Because his difference is huge. The bigger the difference is the bigger the hate of the racist will be. The anti semite hates, not the difference, but the similarity. Right. What makes the anti semite being mad is that he cannot hardly see that the subject in front of him is Jew. And the most imperceptible the Jew is, the bigger the anti-Semitic hate is. All the campaigns of anti-Semitism, they, they hunt, they chase the invisible Jews. The Jews who who hide themselves, who deny themselves, who change their name, and so on. So, the more in the more uh, non it is, the stronger is the hate. It's exactly the opposite phenomenon as the racist. It does not mean wait a minute yeah, yeah. that you don't have to fight. You have to fight the two with equal strength. Sure. And I devoted my life to fight racism and anti-Semitism with absolutely the same fervor and strength. But if you want to fight them, you have to make a good diagnostic. They work in an opposite sense. I mean, in some. About what Blue yeah, yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, Go ahead. I'm not sure I agree. It is a very optimistic way of saying things. You could not torture someone if you did not begin to dehumanize him. Alas, I think he's wrong. I saw, I experienced some uh, real executioners. I saw some uh, torturers, and I can tell you that their pleasure is augmented by the fact that the humanity of their victim is, uh, is vibrant. I remember in, uh, in Colombia, 15 years ago, I, wa- I am probably one of the very rare journalists who went there. I went in the state of Cordoba, hours and hours from Bogota. In a, the trunk of a car, to meet a man who is dead now called Carlos Castagno. He was the chief of the paramilitaries, or so mm. the fascists in Colombia. And his specialty was to torture women by all the possible means. all the most horrible means I don't want to describe them. Yes. here, But he described them to me with a pleasure, with, a, with a happiness, with a sadism, which meant that he knew. That he had in front of himself, not this day, thanks God, real being, real, real, pretty women, young women, and absolutely not dishumanized. So this is a dream to, to say that you have to dehumanize someone before torturing. Emmanuel Levinas would have said that, probably, but he's wrong. The fact that to see Emmanuel Levinas says that when you see really the eyes of somebody. Mm it works as a forbidding to kill. The the hand is suspended, it's not true.
0: So going back to this Colombian paramilitary leader that you were talking about, I mean, do you think that that kind of thing, like in, in his case, is this individual insanity or is this an effect of power that transforms a person in this way to where they would enjoy the suffering of another person? I mean, did it appear to you to be that like, this is a madman? or that this is just something that happens to certain kinds of people in certain powerful situations.
1: He was reasonably mad, he was reasonably powerful, but uh, the real point is not that. He was a king in his kingdom. He had no limits, he had no law, he had uh, no principle or no institution above his head, Mm. forbidding. Do what he did, and my feeling is that in a lot of men and women, you have this tendency. If you read Georges Bataille, Georges Bataille, the French writer, La Literature et le Mal, if you see his uh, meditation about a thing which struck him so much, the image of a young Chinese man, it is called the story of the supplice um, au 100 morceaux the torture in 100 bits it is a story of a chinese okay. tortured life, live by people who take pieces of his body one by one mm. georges bataille said that the, the desire to see that and to take joy of that was a component a hidden repressed occultated component of the mind of so many women and men in humanity This was repressed by the super ego, this was repressed by civilization, this was was repressed by law, but it exists in a lot of people.
0: It seems hard to imagine. I mean, you would think some part of you would cry out like, oh my God, this person is screaming
1: on the floor. If if you are Jean-Jacques Rousseau, (laughs) you think that it is hard to imagine. (laughs) If you are Marquis de Sade, Sade, S-A-D-E, you know that it is uh, a part of humanity. In your work,
0: um, I mean, you've gone and spoken to people like this, you've witnessed atrocities. Do you feel that that, in itself, has been important in understanding what is going on in these conflicts? I mean, that the horror itself and actually knowing about it in detail, or has that been just an unfortunate side effect of the work that
1: you've been trying to do? No, it was not a side effect. Number one, The few times I've been in my life in contact with this sort of evil, which man can do to the other man, it affected me strongly, it changed me. There are things which a man cannot see. I believe that. And I saw things in my life which a man cannot see. And you cannot see things which a man cannot see without having a, a strong effect on you it uh, reveals at night. Uh,
0: trauma. It's a, tra- it's a kind of trauma. Uh, uh,
1: yeah. When Hemingway was asked, Ernest Hemingway, do you believe in God? Hemingway said yes, sometimes at night. Me, if I was asked, do you believe in devil? I would say yes, sometimes at night. When I cannot sleep, when I wake up suddenly, this is what turns in my, in my mind. So after that, there is also an effect of, uh, of knowledge. I think that if right. you want to fight, you have to know. Yes. Right. And you have to show what you know. And when I make, there is a big debate in France, I remember when I made my first documentary about Bosnia in 1944, uh, uh, ninety four about Bosnia, there was a debate. Should I, sh- should be shown or not the horrors committed by the Serbs? All right. I thought yes. At the end of the Second World War when the Ukrainian army went into Auschwitz there was a debate when they found the the tons of corpses and of dismembered skeletons and so on. The questions was should we hide that or should we show that? Gotcha. And they did show. They invited the Polish peasants who saw during three years the train coming to Auschwitz and who did not ask any question, who did not care, who were not embarrassed at all. And they obliged the American soldiers and the Ukrainians, they obliged the Polish peasants to walk, just walk along the, the pieces of humanity who were drying there in the air. And I think they were
0: right. I think that is one thing, to walk among it. It is another to see these images on the media, on the internet, perhaps, okay. I mean, the question there is whether we Absolutely. become desensitized, to, whether...
1: To yeah. see things, you have two, th- you have two way to, yeah. you have three ways to see these sort of things. Yeah. You have the internet, right. which might be... Uh, worse than uh, not seeing, <laughs> right because internet has a tendency to de-realize, right. to de-realize, to transform the true into fake, and there is a point when you see things on YouTube uh, and so on, Facebook, all this bullshit, when you don't know what is fake, what is true. So it have a counter effect. You have a second way, which is the Polish after the war. It might be a good thing. But it might have some counter-effects also. I'm not sure that the compassion is right. There is a third way, which is to make a work. And if the word can be employed, a work of art about that. When Claude Lanzmann, Claude Lanzmann, makes Shoah, which is the masterpiece about Holocaust. He does not have to show, by the way, any bones and any skeletons. But they make them present better than if, if they were shown. And for and the, the
0: audience who may or may not have seen it, this is it how is, many hours long? It is it's nine, set,
1: nine hours.
0: Nine hours of interviews with not uh, interviews, or partly. Filming
1: okay. interviews, nine hours of resurrection of the Holocaust, right. making present the Holocaust. Right. Modestly, less well than Claude Lanzmann. When I made Bosna, I tried to do, in a more limited way, the same thing. To turn this horror of which I had been witness into, when I met Bosna, my task was to turn all this horror of which I had been witness into a a real film. Hmm. I don't say a piece of art, but cinema. And this had a good effect also. In a way, you can control
0: the narrative and the sequence and such to achieve, hopefully, a more lasting effect than just throwing things on the internet. All right, shall we watch one more and continue our conversation? Let's see. Next we have Ian Bremmer. I am not sure what the subject is, so we'll just have to watch and see.
3: A superpower uh, is a country that has the ability to project power globally, uh, both economic, political, diplomatic, technological. And soft power, cultural power and, and, and in that regard there's really only one country in the world that is a superpower today and no one else is remotely close and that's the United States. As a superpower um, we, we have known historically when the Soviet Union was around we knew very clearly uh, what role uh, we should play. We were making the world safe for democracy. Uh, we were uh, in charge of a global economic order. We led the process of globalization. Um, We created a global internet, global standards around governance, global institutions like the WTO, the World Bank, the United Nations. I mean all of that after World War II when we were the only country left standing. That was the role that America played as a superpower. And that really existed for about a half a century uh, of a geopolitical order that was quite dangerous but quite stable. Now when the Soviet Union collapsed, We've experienced about 25 years of a geopolitical environment that is much more unstable though not particularly dangerous. And over the course of that period America's role has become more uncertain. U.S. foreign policy has been more reactive, more risk averse. And we haven't talked a lot about doctrine, Uh, certainly not very much about strategy. Well here we are in 2015. The geopolitical environment is both unstable and getting very dangerous. We have failed states across the Middle East. We have the most powerful terrorist organization the world has ever seen. We have more refugees than at any point since World War II. We have the Russians invading a sovereign state and telling us uh, they don't care what the consequences we might meet against them will be. Um, And we have the Chinese increasingly asserting themselves economically all over the world to challenge a U.S.-led order. And yet the United States does not know what it stands for.
0: You know, as an American in this time in my country, like, I on the one hand am very proud of what America has historically represented and some of the core ideas of our country and democracy as it generally exists here, but I'm also very confused about what our role in the world should be right now. It does not seem black and white to me. I mean, I do see the enemies of democracy out there, but you know, how do you see the sort of the world order unfolding in, you know, in terms of the role of America, the role of, of Europe in the coming years, given the craziness we're seeing worldwide? Are we meant to police the fragmentation of the world? Are we, are we meant to convince
1: people to
0: think differently?
1: To, to make the police? Uh, certainly not to convince people to think differently, I don't know, but to help people who fight against tyranny and who ask for help who ask for help in order to implement democracy when this is doable, when it will not create more harm than good I think that a strong country the duty to do it, yes.
0: Some of the para- paralysis that we see on the progressive left in America right now, uh, and I am sympathetic to some of these ideas, is around externalities that we don't know about. I mean, like knowing, as you say, knowing what is going to be the result of our actions. When we cut down one thing, will a worse hydra spring up in its place, You know, or is it a hydra with a new head that will come? I mean, obviously that can't stop us from from intervening, I think, when there's a genocide going on. But
1: those who say that, the under meaning is that we have to be God in order to intervene. If you don't know everything, if you don't know the consequences, if we don't know what will happen one year after the intervention, 10 years, 20 years, we don't have to intervene. This means that if a man is not a God, he has no right Mm -hmm. to intervene. Okay, so let's say more clearly, in this case, that we don't give a shit about half of humanity, that we don't care uh, the 400,000 Syrians uh, killed uh, in terrible conditions, that we don't care the one million of South Sudanese uh, killed in the the last 25 years, but let's say it clearly, don't disguise our uh, cowardness with these sort of arguments, we don't know what will happen after and so on and so on. You see it as a cloak for cowardice. Of course, it's a a cloak for cowardice. The the reality is that humanity does not, since always and it will be like this always, Mm. does not master the consequences of what she does. Mm. Humanity has to do the best to prevent a bloodbath, to prevent a genocide, and to do his best in order to, to make sure that the follow-up will not be too bad also. Huh. But this is an uncertain task which which has to be implemented with human means and you cannot wait for a goddish knowledge before.
0: But I, I think in some ways French post structuralist thinking as it has trickled down to the rest of us is partly what causes people to see everything as such or some people to see everything as so ambiguous, right? Oh, we don't know, for example, that what looks like tyranny on the surface, I mean, there are some instances where it's undeniable, but what about the Muslim woman who says, I am happier in this way, in my veil kind of thing, you know, can we easily, so a lot of these, a lot of this sort of intellectual paralysis, I think maybe in some ways, like a legacy of post-structuralist thinking.
1: I know that some women say I am happy with the veil. I know also that some Roman slaves said I'm happy with my slavery. I know I saw uh, Gone with the Wind. I know that in the south of America, before the Civil War, there was uh, slaves who were happy to be slaves and who would not have exchanged their slavery against liberty for no price. This Mm. This is true. Does that mean this is a real partage, this is re- the real dividing line? Do we think, do we think that slavery and liberty are equal? Do we think that we, that we don't care about making liberty improve and that we think that slavery is okay? This is the point, mm-hmm. okay? After that, you don't have to liberate by force. You have to to respond to a call. You have, but if you consider this argument yeah. that some women put the veil uh, mm-hmm. willingly, okay. So you had not, you did not have to liberate anyone from any of the nightmares of which the history of mankind since millenaries has been filled.
0: I think it's very interesting that uh, you know ideas like liberty and freedom and democracy, which were radical and, I don't know, one could argue leftist ideas at one time, that if you take the position that you're taking in this discussion, in certain circles, you would be branded as rightist uh, at this time, which is a, you know, in your long political career, do you think that these terms have any meaning anymore, left and right? I am my own brand,
1: (laughs) I I don't care to be branded, (laughs) frankly, I I don't care to to be branded. And, and about, uh, if, if you take this example of the of the veil, there is another argument. The veil is a political sign. It's a political sign indicating that a community of worshippers, of men and women recognize themselves in an obscurantist conception of Islam. Okay. A, a con- obscurantist. Con- Unpack ob- that. Obscurantist little... meaning what? Meaning enslaving their population, Mm. but practicing also the Jihad toward the rest of the world. So, they enslave their women. The women you speak are happy to be slaves, let's admit, I'm not sure, but let's admit. But they are are also threatening you and me, because all this is consistent. The Sharia and the Jihad, in the fundamentalist way of thinking Islam, are cousins, are consistent, match together. So you have the task, number one, to say, to think that it is better to be free than slave. And you have the second task to protect, I don't know if you have children, or if you have a child, yes. To protect your child from an imperialist will, Hmm. which is the imperialist will of those who pretend to expand the Sharia all over the world.
0: Uh, That's assuming those two things are always identical or mostly identical. They are. are. Uh,
1: The same who preach the Sharia, preach the Jihad. Mm. And the Jihad means what? The Jihad means to kill as many liberal Muslims as possible. It means to eradicate the Christians from from the plain of Nineveh. And it means to make terrorist attacks in Europe. So this is a and real the, picture. When you are in front of this argument, you have to see the real picture. This is what I try to do in my book and in my films.
0: Bernard-Henri Lévy, it has been fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for your time today on Think Again. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Think Again. Um, we'll be back next Saturday with another great conversation and if you are new to the show or if you just haven't had a chance to do it, I would really, really appreciate it if you could just take a minute and rate or review us on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever it is you're listening to the show. We've gotten a few new reviews lately and I I read them all and I really, really appreciate them. Uh, They also make a big difference in terms of whether other people hear the show, which will make a big difference in terms of how long the show is on the air. Thank you so much for listening and I hope to have you back next week.